Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. Okay, great. So let's open up our Bibles together, and you can open it with me to the book of Acts, chapter 5. So can you believe it? We already, as we're preaching through this book, in chapter 5, week 11 of our series called Real Christianity, we're going to take a break after this week, and we'll come back to this book. But in the series called Real Christianity, we want to look at the story, the narrative of the early church, as recorded by the Dr. Luke, one of the early followers of Jesus, and it gives us just stories of real faith and real people and real life, and sometimes it's It's messy and sometimes it's inspiring and sometimes it's challenging. And I want to say today falls into that latter category. This is the mother load of all sermons and verses when it comes to the passages that we've gone through. It's a difficult and challenging text and we're going to get into it. Just to set the scene, a couple of years ago, I told this story before, I took in my car just for a routine service, and as I come back to pick it up, the mechanic shows me, in my tire, there's like a massive nail just stuck right into my tire. I didn't even notice. I was flabbergasted. I had been driving around blissfully unaware, and he just pointed out to me, and I have to do something about it. Very similarly, a couple of weeks after that, my wife suddenly notices all these little bumps on my hands. And later on, we would realize that was the start of hand, foot, and mouth disease, which, by the way, sucks. If you've ever had that, it's horrible. So very soon, those little bumps were all over my limbs and the inside of my throat. It was terrible. Now, just imagine I go to this mechanic and to my wife, and I tell them, why are you saying this to me? Why are you shaming my tire? Why are you shaming my body? Why are you bringing bad news into my life? I reject this. I don't want this negativity. Or I say to them, listen, I think it's actually fine. I think I'll manage. I'm perfectly happy. It's actually just going to sort itself out. Do we do that? Do any of us do that? No, we don't do that. We don't do that with our tires. We don't do that with our bodies. We don't do that with our businesses or our finances. We don't do that with the people that are close to us. We don't do that with things that are important to us. Amen? What do we do that with, unfortunately? It seems the only thing we do that with is coincidentally the one thing that is most important to the God of the universe. And what's that? Our souls. We only do that with our souls, with our character. We keep our character defects hidden away. We just stuff them away. Just ignore them. They will sort themselves out. And the question I want to pose to us this morning is, do we think that God is okay with us doing that? Just putting those things aside. And I think we're going to see in this very challenging text that the answer is a resounding no. And it's going to take us very deep into this word called grace. Because the word grace is such a churchy, Christianese word that it often just means in Christian circles, avoidance of pain. Avoidance of the character issues in my life, that's grace. It's grace, guys. So I just stuff it all away. And we're going to see grace in a very different light 
this morning. So open up your Bible to Acts chapter 5, verse 1. And like I said, friends, there are some texts that uh, even in the New Testament, a preacher kind of trembles at engaging with. This is one of those texts. And so I've wrestled with this many times, and I still wrestle with this. It's a really strange and a really striking text. And just to set the scene for it, so we've been reading about the start of the church. Just as they get going in Jerusalem, then we have this couple this married couple called Ananias and Sapphira, and they joined the church. And we don't know what it is that initially drew them. What was so striking about the church that they wanted to be part of it? But I'm guessing some of what drew them was what the, is what the very famous Bible scholar Larry Hurtado, he's got a brilliant book called Destroyer of the Gods, where he shows how the early church community was different from any religious movement that had ever set foot on the face of the earth. And he says some of those distinctives of the early church was things like they, for the first time, spoke about this direct personal relationship with God. That was striking to the people. They practiced a countercultural sexual ethic to the people around them. They broke down every race and age and socioeconomic barrier. Very different from all the people around them. Never something like that before. And they practiced this anti-violence stance even toward the people that persecuted and hurt them. But then he says this interesting thing. He says the last thing that was interesting is the following. Christians, he says, they were unusually generous with their money, particularly to the poor and the needy, and not just to their own family and racial group. Isn't that interesting? It says one of the distinctive things about the church movement was that they were unusually generous with their finances. So in fact, as we pick up from last week, we'll read here the second time that Luke makes effort to show us how generous the church was with its finances. And it actually shows us this man called Joseph. He was an affluent man in the early church, and he decides that he's going to take a field that he owns and he's going to sell it. And he takes the proceeds of this sale and he brings it to the church because he wants the mission of the church to go forward. And the people are so taken back, the text says, by this act of generosity, a response to Jesus in generosity, that they start calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. You have so encouraged our hearts through your generous act. And now we have this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, And they want to get in on this generous celebrating action. And so the following happens. Read with me in verse 1. It says, A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's just worry there for a moment. So let's just tease this out that we're all on the same page. So what's happening? And in eyes of Sapphira see this act of generosity and the people's generosity and they are taken aback. And they see the people celebrating this Joseph. They've renamed him even. They're calling him this nickname. And I think there's a bit of jealousy that starts stirring in their hearts. They want to get in on this, but there's an issue. They have a dilemma. And what is that? They want to be generous but they also just want to be rich. They want to be celebrated in love by the people, but they also want to indulge their own selfishness. They want to hear people praise them for what they are doing, but they are also willing to deceive those very same people in the process. 
So what happens? I mean, Ananias literally tells himself, okay, so this is what we'll do. We'll take one of these fields we own, we'll sell it, and we won't bring all of it. We'll just pretend. I mean, it's not even lying, not really. And it's not like we're saying to them it's all of it. It's just going to appear to them that it's all of it. So we're going to be just like Joseph, but just not really. So what is the issue? They have what? Divided hearts. They have a divided heart. And can I just tell you something this morning? I'll just be the first one to be honest. You know what the truth is? I'm like that. I have a divided heart. Because often I say, God, I want you and nothing but you. (laughs) But God, in this moment, I also want what I know you directly oppose. I have a divided heart. I know you guys are just like saints about to go to heaven soon. But me, I have a divided heart. So what happens? His wife speaks to him. And this is such a crucial moment, guys, because what can she do in this moment? She can say, husband of mine, listen to me. You have bumps on your hands. You have a nail in your tire. You have a character defect. And it's time to get the surgical gloves on because we are going to get the sucker right out of you right now. But what does she do? She says, Okay, that sounds like a great plan. And so they go forward. And then it says the apostle, which simply means one of the early leaders of the church that were chosen by Jesus personally, the apostle Peter, he finds out about this. And the text doesn't tell us how he finds out, but simply that he does. And so there is a moment of confrontation between Peter and Ananias. And guys, we see a side of Peter we have not seen before because he is not waffling around. And he tells him straight, listen, as I realize what you are doing, the great sin in this moment is not the greed and the resentment and the jealousy. No, because I mean, he basically tells him, you didn't have to do this. No one was holding a gun to your head and saying you have to give. You have decided to do this. You didn't have to give at all. You have made this decision. He says to him, no, in this moment, you know what the greatest sin is in here? It's the sin of deception. It's the sin of choosing to live a double life. Of playing the religious game. Of trying to keep up appearances, but meanwhile back at the ranch, I'm hurting, I'm broken. And we see in this text that for some reason, that kind of double living, that kind of religiosity... When we're playing the Christian, you know, uh, theater production, we all come here on a Sunday and it's all so great and beautiful, but we're not honest with one another. The text says for some reason that is so toxic to the church that God sees it not simply as a sin against one another, but it's a sin against God. That's heavy. (laughs) I told you this text is heavy. So the following happens. Now buckle up. It says in verse three, Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? And you have not lied to the people, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. That's heavy, friends. And so a couple of hours later, his wife comes in. 
Same conversation, exactly the same result. The text says his wife drops dead on the spot. And if you think it's too much, listen to how it ends. Verse 11, it says, Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. Jeez. Guys, this is heavy. This is the New Testament. And I'm like, whoa. I mean, come on, let's be honest. This is not a great church growth strategy. Are you with me? Like we printed on the flyers as we're handing them out in Hatfield. Come to church. You might die. (laughs) Right? So my question, I hope, is the question that you're wrestling with, that I've been wrestling with for years with this text. And that is, why is this in the Bible? Why did the Dr. Luke decide to record this for us? This is scary stuff. This is confusing. What is the point of this? And so something that's really helped me, I'm still wrestling, guys. I don't have it figured out, and I'm asking us to wrestle together. We made a commitment to preach through books of the Bible, and we get to stuff that's uncomfortable. But I think there's a truth in it for us. And one way that's really helped me, just engaging with people that really know the scriptures, that have committed their life to it, is an analogy. Something that they come back to almost constantly. And basically what they're doing is they're answering this question. What was happening behind the scenes in the early church? What was happening in the early church? And the answer is that mankind through the church for the first time again, Since almost the beginning, we're getting plugged back into the source of power. They were getting plugged back into the source of life through the Holy Spirit. You know, many years ago, we've moved quite a couple of times. But one of these moves, as we were unpacking our middle child, Benjamin, he was very young at that stage. He was unpacking and he got hold of this little coffee machine that we had. And without us knowing, he's there in a room on his own. And he starts taking the outlet and he's going to the power outlet. He's taking the plug and he's starting to fiddle around with the power outlet. And you can, I'm sure you know, this will end very well, obviously. And so I'm sitting there and suddenly you just hear this whoop and then just crying, 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 crying. Now, luckily, I know Wayne (laughs) will will know that this is not good. Um, Luckily, he was fine. But I mean, he got a jolt. It was a shocking moment in his early life right there. Just a little dad joke. Come on, guys. Come on. So he was suddenly reconnected to a source of power. And what these commentators come back to over and over is that for some strange reason, the early chapters of Acts is mirroring the early chapters of Genesis 1 to 3. And the same thing is playing out. Genesis 1 to 3 is the creation of mankind. And we see that Adam and Eve are in this incredible way connected to what the Bible says God is. He's the source of life. But then in this moment where they are drawing directly from God, there is what? There's sin, there's rebellion, there's brokenness. And that disconnects them from this source of life and death enters into their life. And so what's happening, the commentators say that if you look at Acts, it's almost like God is recreating. It's the new man. It's the new human being in the church. And the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, we preached about it just the other day. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, for the first time, mankind is connected to a source of power that it hasn't been connected to in millennia. In fact, it says in Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive what? When the, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, power. <laughs> There's something new that the Holy Spirit was doing. But as with the garden, the first moment of deception, of hiddenness, 
There's a break in relationship. So too, this is the first time in the new mankind, in the new human being, through the Holy Spirit, through the church, this is the first moment of hiddenness and deception. And what happens? Sin always leads to death. There's a break once again. So mankind is for the first time connected once again to a source of power it hasn't seen since Genesis 1 to 3. But my question is, what and how does that power operate? How does that power actually work? The Holy Spirit in between the people. Because I think we often misunderstand. We think that the church, the gathering of the people, the community of faith, we think the point of this is for us to come together and to show each other how great we are how moral we are, how put together we are, how absolutely awesome we are. That's the point of the church, right? People who go to church, that's why people will tell me, I can't go to the church at the moment. I just need to sort out some things in my life first, right? Who's been there? It's like, I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm just going to lose some weight first and then I'll go to the gym. So I don't go to the church because put together people go to the church, right? But that's a lie. Where do you read that in the Bible? Because the church in the Bible is the place where whether it's the gathering of the people, whether it's the family of faith, or whether it's just our community groups, they are not these museums of self-righteousness. They are like little spiritual power grids. That's what the Bible says. We are these little sources of spiritual power, and that power comes from a place of us being open and honest with one another. Because when we do this, guys, when we have the masks on, when it's the religious theater production and it's all smiles and it's all, yes, it's going great, thank you, and everything's amazing, and we're pretending and we're lying and we're hiding, it's like all the power is just suddenly away. But when we tell our real stories to one another, the stories of depression and brokenness and hurt and disbelief and struggling in faith, my real battles, my real stories, when I share those things with you and people are really known and people are really loved and people are really supported, the Bible says there's a power that flows from the Holy Spirit between the people. And it's a power that heals and it's a power that restores and it's a power that comes to make whole. It's a power that transforms us into the image of Jesus. Thank you, Younger. Younger is waving. That's her version of amen. So if you want to participate in this Sunday celebration, you are more than welcome to do so. This power lives in the light. It lives in our weakness and we trusting in Jesus. In fact, God says to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. For what? My power is made perfect in what? Your weakness. <laughs> Isn't that powerful? Guys, when we live in the light with one another in community, when I can say, even as the pastor of this church, I get that, man, it, it irks me when someone like, oh, you are the minister. So that means that you are like some more holy than thou person. I am like you, my friend, with just a different calling as your calling is different from mine as to the person next to you. But when we can tell one another, guys, this week I am messed up. Today, I feel deeply tempted to walk away from what God has called me to. Today, I'm struggling. Today, I'm broken. Then there's a power. Then there's something beautiful that happens. Sins are mentioned and confessed. People are known and people get healed. That's church. 
But when we are hiding, and I'm, it's always, you know, PR. It's like a live Instagram account. I'm just feathering out all the bad stuff, and I'm trying to look like this person. All the power just gets sucked out of the church. And then we experience that stuckness. We've experienced it, friends. I've experienced it in my community group. I've experienced it in my own life. I experienced it in my marriage where there's this stuckness because we become isolated. I will deal with my things in my little dark corner and you do the same. And we'll just smile at each other on a Sunday. Woo, Jesus is so great. But he's not great enough to actually do something in my heart, in my life, in my character. So why is this in here? What do you think is part of the lesson? I think that what the Luke doctor through the the inspiration of the spirit is trying to tell us is not and hear me not that we should be afraid of physical death because jesus dealt with sin satan and death on the cross forever and if you are a christian here this morning not through your own greatness but through the sufficiency of jesus even when you die life has only started for you not one day it started now you are more alive than you will ever be we do not have to fear death but this passage is saying we should fear something We should fear it. In fact, we should fight tooth and nail against it. And what is that? It's living double lives. It's living in the darkness. It's having a church where we are putting on a performance. The Bible says fear that. Because when that happens, all the power of the Holy Spirit, the healing power, the restoring power, the grace of the Holy Spirit is broken. And there's an invitation to say that's not the church that Jesus came to start. He did not come to start a community of faith where we pretend our way through life. He came to start a church where there is great power, where there is healing power, where there's restoring power, where I can come in as I am and not stay that way. That is the church that Jesus came to start and that you are invited to give yourself to. Amen? Deep breath. (laughs) Keep your hands inside the ride at all times, friends. So application, what does this look like? What does this look like? Because we are not perfect. Can I just say that again? You are not perfect. I'm not perfect. But we have a perfect Savior who's, who's died a perfect death and who gives us his perfect spirit. So in the context of that, what's the commitment that we need to make as a church? If this is your church, if you need to step into this church, what's the commitment that we need to make to become more of what Jesus called us to be? And I want to just briefly say three quick commitments for us to make. Easy to mention, very difficult to apply, but we are going to trust the Holy Spirit. Commitment number one is we are going to commit to regular internal audit. We call this introspection. And all the chartered accountants, when I said audit, they what audit was? Please not work. I can't do this anymore. It's all right. We're in church, guys. You can relax. But this is called introspection. What does it mean? It means that regularly I am going to take time as a Jesus follower, and I'm going to come into the presence of God through his spirit, and I'm going to say, God the Father, will you reveal in my heart and life what is not of you? God, what in my character or in my doing does not reflect the son and the daughter of the king that you have made me to be in Jesus? Listen to what it says in Psalm 139, verse 23. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me, and what? Lead me to everlasting way. So I don't do this alone. I do this in the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
I, I put intervals into my week where I'm just saying, gracious and powerful spirit, show me what is not of God. And friends, why is this so important? Can I just ask that? Why is this so important? Let me give you one example, at least. Is what do you think South Africa and our city needs most? Maybe even the church. What do we need most? Do we need better government? Do we need better technology? Better medicine? Do we need better entertainment? I want to say those things are great. But what we need is people of greater character. Isn't that true? Guys, politics will only go as far as the character of the people that inhabits it. We need people of greater character in this country. And here's the good news for you and me this morning. You can make a significant contribution to that issue this morning. You know that? You can make a significant contribution. You know where you can start with that contribution? You're thinking, maybe I should start with my boss <laughs> or my colleague or my, you know, that neighbor whose dog is never not barking. I can start there with a contribution and character. Maybe it's with my wife or my spouse. Maybe it's with the person sitting next to me at church today. So don't look around now because then they know that's the person you're referring to. But can I invite you? You obviously know what the answer is. You know who the person is you can make a great contribution to today. Hello? It's you. Where can I make the greatest contribution today? It's me. God is calling us through his spirit, not in our own power. He's calling us to say, you first take the nail out of your tire. You first ask the Holy Spirit to identify the bumps on your hand. And we're doing this with other people, but God is giving you the responsibility for the care of your own soul. So can I give you an example in my own life? One of many. I can give you the encyclopedia of Joe being just a normal person. Here's one example. I have, I'm now 33 years old this year, and I have, for the whole of my life, I've battled with biting criticism and negativity. Anyone like that? Biting criticism and negativity. I've found it all throughout my life so simple to really attack the people around me and their motives and actions with sarcasm and negativity and biting remarks. And I'll never forget one evening in my early 20s, we were a bunch of friends together at this guy's house and we were watching the rugby together and then we had a, you know, a live performance by one of the bands that we all appreciated and then we watched the movie together. And all throughout all three of those, I was constantly making out loud just these comments, these negative comments and criticizing the players and the this and the music and the, the acting and all of it just the whole time. And after one of these comments again, it was almost as if the Holy Spirit gave me a moment of revelation, like the scales falling off of my eyes, because it's almost like he allowed me just to turn around for a second and bathed in the blue light of the television, I suddenly saw the faces of my friends. And I saw suddenly the effect of what I was doing to them, how it was just sucking out all the energy and the joy and the passion out of the room. There was a moment of introspection for me. God, will you come and heal me? We are committing to the nail in our own tire and the bumps on our own hands and the power of the Holy Spirit. But the second commitment we want to make as a church is to what? Live in the light. <laughs> the Bible calls this confession. James 5 verse 16 famously says, therefore, what? Confess 
your sins, hide your sins, minimize your sins, manage your sins, put them away, ignore them. No, it says confess them to one another and pray for one another so that you may be what? Healed. The power of a righteous person is powerful in its effect. Now, just listen to me very carefully. You, if you are a Christian, you are not a sinner. Can I repeat that? You are not a sinner. The Bible never calls you a sinner. So don't call yourself a sinner. We are the righteousness of Jesus. We are sons and daughters in the house of the king. We are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 says, your nature and identity has changed. But guess what? We still sin. We sometimes hearken back to the old man. And this text doesn't say you can find forgiveness in Jesus afresh. It says you can find what? Healing. When you confess to other people. Do you see the connection between Christians who confess to one another and are what? They are healed. They are transformed. They experience freedom. And what? I confess to God. I confess to myself and I confess to one of you. And guess which of those three is the most difficult to do? I'll give you a clue. It's not God and it's not me. So that eliminates all the, all the other options. It's you, of course. Because sitting in front of Taiki, it's tough. He's flesh and blood in my face. I have to bear my soul. Even with a beautiful face like that, it's difficult, friends. Now, I've got a friend I've known forever. And probably two years ago, he phones me up. And he says, Joe, for the first time in my life, now in my late 20s, as a married man, this guy loves Jesus, I am deeply struggling with pornography. It's never been like, I skipped that phase for everyone else in high school, and now as someone who loves his wife and who loves Jesus, pornography is ruling my life. It's ruling my mind. It's ruling my spirit. It's ruling my habits. I'm battling. And you know what the typical Christian thing to do is? is then to hide it away. It's just say, no one will ever know. I will manage my sin in the dark somewhere. But I was so proud of this friend of mine because he did something that the Bible says we should do. He went to someone that he trusted in the church. And what? He confessed. He didn't hide the details. He wasn't ashamed because he doesn't have to be ashamed. His identity isn't Jesus. But he said, I want to be honest with you. And guess what? It wasn't sprinkle, you know, fairy dust in that moment. Oh, then all the pornography just left me. No, it was a journey. It was weekly journeying together, experiencing the grace and the confession of God. That is the road that he walked, friends. There is healing for us. And can I just say this? Here's a truth that all of us have to wrestle with. I wrestle with this. A pastor once said, you are as sick as your secrets. Isn't that true? You are as sick as soon as your secrets remain secret. The Bible says confess to those in the church that are close to you and experience healing. This friend of mine, I'll never forget him saying over the phone, Joe, it feels like the weight of the world has come off of my shoulders. So what's the last commitment? We want to commit as a church to what? Make things right. We want introspection and we want confession. But when there has been wronged, we want to ask for restoration. Leviticus 6.4, Old Testament. It says, once he has sinned and acknowledged his guilt, then what? He must return what he stole or defrauded or de the deposit entrusted to him or the last item he found or anything else about which he swore falsely. He will make full restitution, which means making it right for it. 
See guys, the purpose behind us doing internal auditing and confessing and making things right, it's not so that we would receive love and forgiveness by God. We have that in Jesus. <laughs> we have forgiveness and grace in Jesus. And the main reason is not even so that we would smooth out relationships in the church. But often that's needed. It's a beautiful thing. When a, when a parent goes to a child and says, I'm sorry, I'm going to make this right. Or when a colleague goes to a colleague or a boss and they say, I was wrong. Or when kids go to their adult parents and they say, I was wrong. It's beautiful to see the reconciliation that happens in the church. Whether it's emotional, relational, sometimes financial when people make things right and they don't run away, that's beautiful. But that's not even the main point. The main reason why we do this is because it's in this that we experience the grace of God. It's in this that we experience the transformation of God inside out in our lives. It's in these moments that God comes to transform us into the image of Jesus. I have a friend, her father, most of his life, he was a hard man, a difficult man. Brilliant businessman, but he is a hard nut. <laughs> and miraculously, I can't tell the story today, late in his life, he is miraculously saved by Jesus. His, his whole life is transformed. The Holy Spirit cracks open this hard man. And one of the first things that he felt led to do was to go to the South African Revenue Service, SARS, everyone's best friend. And say to them, I have for years evaded my taxes. And he went to them. And you know, you are facing jail time and massive fines. And he could have said, well, I have experienced the grace of Jesus. That's all in the past. I'm just going to ignore it. No, he said, because of the grace of Jesus, I'm going to make this right. Friends, that's grace. That is the transforming power of God in us. We are invited to introspection and to confession and to restoration. That word that they use, their restitution, is literally two words. Restore again. God, come and restore again. And just as we end off, I have this fear in my heart that for two reasons, some of you, this is not going to land in your heart the way it should. And one reason could be you are sitting there and you're saying, I think this is true, but I don't think it's for me. Because you know what? I know some of the people in the church and I know people in the city. They are moral train wrecks, guys. Let's be honest. Some of these people in the church, I've been at their house. I've spoken to them. Some of the people in the city, they are murderers. They rapists. They jailbirds. They defrauding people. You know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a moral train wreck. I am just a good person. I am just a decent person. And the issue is you are placing yourself in the category of a culturally decent person. I'm not a train wreck. I'm not perfect. I'm just culturally decent. I live this way for most of my life thinking I'm a Christian. But here's the challenge, friends. Culturally decent people, their sin is some of the most insidious because it's unforgiveness. It's that lovelessness. It's judgmentalism. And you don't see it because it sits very deep under the surface. And it's covered in all this religious lingo and all these good moral things, but it's deep in there. And can I go further in saying that it was culturally decent people that Jesus opposed 
He hang out, he hung out with the sinners, but he opposed the culturally decent. In fact, it was the culturally decent that killed him on a cross. Don't let the Holy Spirit not come into your heart today. Don't let the enemy tell you that you are just, you're just good. And secondly, I think some of you sit here and the reason why you can't experience this healing is because you are not actually in a connected relationship with the people of this church. In our church, we speak about community groups. We have spaces where we are known. Yes, you come to church once every couple of weeks, and that's awesome. It's beautiful. But guess what? You will never be known here, friends. Minute to mingle is not fellowship. (laughs) Minute to mingle is not living in the light. It's in those places where we are known. And I'm hearing people all the time tell me, Joe, I'm too tired. I'm too, you know, stressed out. And I'm, I'm just too busy at the moment to be in a community group. And I want to partially agree with you. You are too tired, too busy, and too stressed out not to be in a community group. Because you are making yourself easy pickings for the enemy. You are making yourself easy prey for the enemy. You know that brilliant book by C.S. Lewis, The the Screwtape Letters, where he has this fictional story of the elder demon coaching the younger demon on how to just, you know, make people's lives difficult as Christians. And at one stage he says to him, let me teach you one of my ultimate secrets. This works every time, he says. You know what that secret is? He says, get them isolated from the people of God. He says, get them to take offense with someone in the church. Get them to become suspicious of the people in the church. Get them to be so busy with their work, their vocation, with their toys, with their holidays away, with all the good things that they never have time to engage in genuine relationship. Get them to just be there. They're just there. And the challenge with this, friends, superficial relationships in the church, it literally kills the church. It kills the church. We can be a functioning church in the sense that we worship on Sundays and we do some activities and we hand out sandwiches on the streets, but we are dead. And what happens is the Holy Spirit wants to do deep spiritual surgery on the two of us, you and me. But when I get into that mode, I'm always floating around. I'm always too busy. On a Wednesday, I just, you know, I just want to wash my hair. Sorry, guys, I can't make it to group again. And this is happening. I'm always busy. I'm always traveling. What's happening is I want to be in that place of surgery, but only superficially. I want to lay on the gurney just every now and then, just for a couple of seconds. Woo, this is exciting. I pop my head into the church. You know, I just want to, I just want to smell some of what, you know, the doctors are doing and some of the smells of the hospital. But I don't actually want to lie on the gurney and have the Holy Spirit break me open for true healing. Don't allow the enemy to do that to you. And can I just end and just say, friends, I think there are one or two people here this morning that you say, my issue is not that I think I'm culturally decent or that I'm not in a community group. My issue, as you have been just speaking about healing and about wholeness, about grace, I realize it's just that I just don't know Jesus. I just don't know Jesus. I know about him. And I've hung around people that know him, but I don't know him. And so I believe the Holy Spirit wants to come and make you alive today. And I'm going to ask you, just as I pray for all of us now, that you would pray in your heart and you would agree with 1 John 1.8 that says, if I say to God, I have no sin, I'm deceiving myself. But if I confess to him, 
He says what? He is faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And friends, you're not adding Jesus as a cherry on top of the cake that is your life. You're saying, Jesus, I'm laying down everything before you. And I want to know you. I want to follow you. I don't want my life as a second chance. I want your life. I want to experience the healing of salvation today. I want to be a new creation. So can we pray today? Can we pray for introspection? Can we pray for restoration between each other? Can we pray for confession that brings healing? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning for my own heart. Wow. God, we have a desire as a church to be the body that you have made us to be. And not on our own strength, not on our own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, in this week for key conversations. I pray for people to slot into true community. And I pray for people to go and make things right. I pray this morning for for people here that realize they do not know you, Jesus. And that your presence would just erupt into their hearts, God, as they accept you as Lord and Savior. May they know life and life to the full. We pray that in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Can we try that one more time? Everyone said?